0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Eric Elnes, Senior Minister for Countryside Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Dr. Elnes received his PhD in Biblical Studies from Princeton Theological Seminary. He served as senior pastor of Scottsdale Congregational United Church of Christ in Scottsdale, Arizona for 13 years. And then in 2008, Countryside Community Church in Omaha welcomed him as its senior minister. Dr. Elnis is internationally recognized for creating multi-sensory experiential worship that transcends classification as traditional or contemporary. Elnis's books include Igniting Worship, The Seven Deadly Sins, and Asphalt Jesus finding a new Christian faith along the highways of America. Dr. Elnes was the lead author and editor of the Phoenix Affirmations, a popular, ecumenically developed set of 12 principles that are becoming an important theological backbone of the progressive Christian movement in and outside the United States. Responding to a new faith calling, Dr. Elnis will soon be leaving Omaha to minister at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Portland, Oregon. A Pacific Northwesterner, an area where much of Dr. Elnis's family lives. Dr. Elnis, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's great to be on. So, I, I read somewhere that you, you did and you continue to have a keen interest in science, and at one point mm-hmm. you had even considered a, a career studying and pursuing solar research. Yes. And so, I'm curious about where did your faith emerge and, and what was the catalyst? for you to, to turn towards um, a vocation that was grounded in um, theology and ministering.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I was actually applying to uh, working up applications for colleges uh, to just yes, go into solar energy research. And, and then uh, at the end of my junior year of high school, I had a profoundly mystical experience. Actually, a friend of mine and I simultaneously had a profoundly mystical experience that convinced us of three things um, – one, uh, there is a God. (laughs) And and, and second, um, that this God is not only aware of us, but is far more aware of us than we're aware of us. And third, um, that because of that awareness, and despite that awareness, we are loved by this God beyond our wildest imagination. And that really shook me up. Um, It really got me thinking about things. And um, and. I noticed, you know, in the coming months after that experience that I started feeling these weird senses of, you know, like going into ministry, sh- shifting paths, and it scared me. I mean, I never thought about being a minister at all. And, um, and and my impression of ministers, I grew up in a church where um, a minister I'd gotten really close to who had confirmed me basically got booted out of the church right after he got back from a three-month sabbatical. <laughs> and, and I watched him, what was supposed to be his glory Sunday, uh, coming back from sabbatical, um, break down and cry and just could not get himself back together. He was led away from the pulpit and we just kind of stumbled the rest of the way through the service. And I thought, this is what it means to be a minister. Like you could actually set yourself to be be like this heavily, you know, emotionally (laughs) distraught. I I want nothing to do with it. So I actually um, intentionally ran from um, that sense of call to the ministry. And um, I no longer wanted to be a, a scientist, though, because that experience changed me enough that like I... I didn't want to be locked away in some ivory tower someplace. I wanted to be with people. And so I thought, well, what can I do that would be with with people that would be as far away from the ministry as I could possibly get? At at the time, I thought, well, that'd be like business or something like that. So I enrolled in a secular college then and majored in economics with the idea of eventually getting an MBA and going to some sort of business and and doing that. But the further I, the more I pulled away in college, Um, well, by the time I was a junior in college, I had to, I couldn't admit that I'd be a minister. Still, but um, I I had to admit that I couldn't see living life without going to seminary, and well, it was kind of all downhill from there. But even to this day, I actually bought my first uh, clergy shirt. You know, like one of those black shirts with the clergy collar. I've never had one of those because I always was worried that if I saw myself in the mirror and and realized I actually was a minister, I'd freak out. (laughs) But I I bought my first clergy shirt for the protests here in in Omaha um, in the last few months to help de-escalate things, and that was the first time I've ever owned a clergy shirt.
0: How has your faith changed? I I still sense from you um, that you're in a perpetual uh, dialogue with yourself and, and with God, too. And I don't expect that to necessarily ever change, but um, I'm sure the dialogue itself has changed over the last several decades that you you have been uh, faithful and ministering. And so I'm just curious how how you sense that change for yourself over time.
1: Yeah, there have been different changes. And I remember even before, you know, kind of the before ministry too. I mean, for instance, the uh, LGBTQ things, I mean, before ministry and before seminary, I was very much like you know, or actually before college, as and into college, I was very much like many Christians. Like I was never like we should kick people out of churches who are gay or something like this. But I always thought, well, that's just one sin amongst many, and and so we should just welcome people, like because we welcome sinners. And then I met somebody who was gay in college who really rattled my understanding of what. A gay person might be like, because I hadn't really had known experience of this, and it really caused me to do research, and in seminary, I, I researched every passage in the Bible that had to do with that, and realized, we've been sold a bill of goods on this. This is, this is absolutely, absolutely horrible theology that would support this, and, and so I had this big change and became an activist um, in that sphere as a minister for um, you know, most of my ministry, actually, um, and so that was a big, you know, big change for me and, 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 and kind of growing increasingly activist. At least, you know, once I accepted that that's not a sin, I thought, well, but it's not important to come out and be an open and affirming church, you know, publicly declare it. But then I realized, well, wait a minute. I, in, in Scottsdale, a former mayor told me about my own church that they were in part of this new neighborhood at the time in the 60s and, and, and it was lily white and a, and a black um, family had moved into the neighborhood and the church had really... Welcome that family in contrast to the rest of the neighborhood and the family ended up joining the church and so forth. And the minister was thinking back on that, saying, you know, back then there was a big difference between churches who would say, we welcome everybody and churches that say, we welcome everybody, including black people. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, we need to do that with respect to LGBTQ Persons of the state. Now, back when I was doing this, there was no Q or T in that equation. They were, they were talking about gay and lesbian rights mostly, and things like that. And over time, that evolved that language. But um, so that was a, a change to become more activist, you know, in, in that area. Um, as I have gotten to the Tri- Faith Commons, that's been a kind of the most recent big kind of internal um, evolution, I, I guess you could say it's been just incredible, one of the most incredibly revitalizing experiences in my life to be part of the Tri-Faith uh, Initiative and, and be on the Tri-Faith Commons. Um, what I'm finding is, like, I have a PhD in the Hebrew Scriptures, so I, I know the Jewish Scriptures very, very, very well, um, you know, at least a fair amount, and, and yet I've realized my understanding of Judaism, though, was a lot, you know, it's not all about the text, you know, it's about the life. And so I've just been learning so much. And same thing with Islam. I've studied Islam. I studied in college and again in seminary and, and after seminary. But there's nothing like the lived life and, and to be able to worship with these folks. And, and so oftentimes before COVID, you would find me at Friday I'd be uh, I'd be bowing uh, prostrating myself with the Muslims at, at the AMI, and and Saturday I would be at the Shabbat morning uh, service with Temple Israel, and Sunday I'd be in my church, and I just love that. I was just drinking that up pre COVID, and what I find is that these three faiths are like three um, siblings of the same parent, you know, and when we're not fighting each other or claiming, you know, I'm the apple of my parents' eye or I'm the favorite and just start, you know, getting to know each other, living with each other and playing together and, and supporting one another. It's just the most wonderful experience and, and it gives me different lenses to see my own faith. I use this, this example of an optometrist office uh, frequently now because it's like, you know, when you go in to get your new prescription, they put those lenses in front of you and finally you say, oh, there's, I thought that was an E, but it's a B. Well, I found that when I look at my own Christian scriptures or look at my scriptures through Christian eyes, but then I add a Jewish lens and a, and a Muslim lens over it, suddenly things become clear that I'd never seen before. Like, whoa, this is, I mean, about Jesus even and about stuff like this is like, this is just amazing. And so it's really been a very enlivening and enlightening experience you know, being here. And I've really appreciated the depths of, of being in relationship with these two perennial traditions that are, that were where we're related, but we're not exactly the same.
0: So you've talked a little bit about these Phoenix affirmations um, and the embrace of uh, those that identified as, as lesbian and gay into the world of um, Christianity as practiced in your faith tradition. But you received, as I understand it, you certainly received um, disparaging, if not hate mail, and uh, you know threatening responses to that. How have you appreciated and seen a movement on that issue, and we'll come to other issues in a second. But how have you, how have you seen that issue change over time mm-hmm. in terms of your faith and and how the world at large is, uh, yeah. is treating that?
1: That's a very good question. Um, actually, it's funny when you when you ask me that question that way. I think of my dog, uh, a former dog I had named Kita. Um, so yes, when we were in Arizona, I was very activist on the LGBTQ. Uh, Equality and so forth as part of a clergy group, and we were writing it to the paper all the time and things like this, and we started getting hate mail and kind of rather threatening hate mail. And at one point, my wife and I had the conversation, like, you know, boy, you know, this could get dangerous here. Do we continue doing what we're doing or we back off? It took us about ten seconds, you know, uh, like, no, we will absolutely not back off. We will just we will increase our personal safety. So we bought an alarm system. We bought a Doberman. We bought you know light, motion sensing lights and all this, this thing to help protect ourselves, and so that's where things were in Arizona. The the poetic part and the reason why I think about my dog Kita is because when I came here, um, one of the things that came on the table was uh, about including. LGBTQ persons in the non-discrimination hiring clause in, in with the city, and so we we were very much in, in that dialogue, and, and actually we created um, clergy here locally created something called the Heartland uh, the Heartland um, Declaration. I think that was the <laughs> that declaration. It was a, an open and affirming statement um, signed by clergy here. Um, but the day that that I was literally sitting in the city council meeting where they're going to vote on this. Um, I got a text from my wife saying, you need to get down to the vet. We have to put Keita down. She died the day that the, that the city affirmed included LGBTQ persons in the non-discrimination hiring clause. And it just felt, you know, it was very sad, but it felt poetic. It's like Keita, I even kind of tear up even thinking about it. It's like, okay, I, I'm no longer needed. I mean, society's changed enough that you don't need a Doberman to protect you anymore. I can go. And she was, her body turned out was riddled with cancer. She's kind of hanging on, you know, and, and it was just like, oh my God, you know, and, and obviously it's not entirely safe you know, for LGBTQ persons in our society, but the movement has been you know, tremendous.
0: What are the other significant causes that you believe as a theologian and as someone who ministers to um, a congregation, society, what are those causes?
1: Yeah, well, I believe that there are two great existential threats to humanity right now that, we, that anybody should be paying attention to. And if you're a person of faith, you should be not only paying attention, but saying this is sacred work. And one is on, on climate, addressing climate change, uh, and, and where we could literally do future generations in for centuries uh, to come. And the other is on peacemaking, uh, and the, which could take a variety of forms. You know, that would take pluralism in 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 that you know peace between religions, as, as as part of that. That we need, you know, if you if you were just to kind of think about the next fifty to hundred years, what what are the chances that we're going to unleash massive global violence on each other if we're not careful? I mean, we've we've lived with that threat, like nuclear war, for you know now better than a half a century, and um, and that has not let up though. We still are we have this massive uh, individually we're a lot safer than before the murder rate's gone down and down 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 but in tr- collectively we've never been in so much danger so i think any person who cares about their children and their grandchildren and future generations needs to be activist on, in peacemaking and in on the environment, or, you know, pick one <laughs> but 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 make sure that, that you you're involved in some way on, on in these levels because um, we could either curse or bless future generations. They're not going to care whether we're Republican or democrat. they're not going to care whether we were good people or bad people. they're not going to care um, you know what job we had or, or whatever um, they're not even care how if we tried really hard. All, what they're going to care about is did we leave them a world that they can inhabit and 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 be fruitful. And if we haven't done that, they're not going to care about anything else.
0: How do you in practice convey that message and how do you feel it's being received?
1: Well as a minister, then my job is to, you know, it's kind of in my lane, <laughs> is to is to articulate this theologically. You know? And and so what I see, you know, for instance, with respect to the environment is that the Celtic Christians got it right. You know, from, from, from centuries ago, um, uh, you know, they believed that, that, that the entire earth is an incarnation of God's love. That if you want to know what God's love looks like, smells like, tastes like, feels like, guess what? We're in luck. Look around you. <laughs> it's all around us. That everything around us is sacred. This is not like some, you know, like, earth bad, spirit good. It's all spiritual. All of it. There's just some, you know, in, there are physical manifestations of spirit. And non-physical manifestations of spirit, and so we need to be relating to the earth um, with the same respect and dignity as we respect God. I mean, because God's riddled through it; God's shot through <laughs> the earth, um, and and so we need to be acting with toward the earth in this in this way. Um, what is interesting? I've seen a sea change uh, out there, and like the countryside church, even when I first got here almost 13 years ago, i heard perpetually about two really radical sermons that the associate minister had preached, and they had to be, they were two on the environment. And I just heard endlessly about these radical sermons that she, she was normally mild-mannered and everything else, but these were radical. Well, uh, (laughs) but, um, and so that was kind of the stance of countryside um, in general, 13 years ago. But, you know, within five years, I mean, we were doing a whole series on the environment and nobody's heart was, you know, palpitating, all of them being excited, like, oh my gosh, we need to get into this. And in fact, when we built the new church on the Tri-Faith Commons, our goal actually you know, that's a a $26 million building that we funded out of our own pockets so we didn't have like outside funds coming in. So it was a huge commitment on people's part. But nevertheless, and and very intimidating, nevertheless, we added a million dollars extra to that goal in order to build the greenest, church in the United States. And the reason why we did that was not because we wanted some big EO award, you know, for having that, but we thought, well, all the publicity for the tri-faith, you know, that's going to get all kinds of publicity. Well, we want another story here too about faith in the environment. And so we, unfortunately we didn't meet that extra goal. I mean, $26 million dollars. <laughs> was quite a stretch uh, but it did ensure that we were building um, the smallest building we could build for our congregation we, it was interesting to have all those conversations like usually big, you know, people want bigger is better it's like everybody's like how much smaller can we make this how much more efficient can we make this and and then putting all kinds of, of, of sustainability um, pieces in. It, a lot of that did make it into the building and in fact we're, we are plumbed to take you know, on full solar panels and, and eventually become the greenest church uh, in the country but that's still down the road.
2: Raise a voice, hear it echo. Raise a voice, hear it echo.
0: So, all of these things are really, I feel like, putting you in touch with a practical, applied Christianity. And so that takes me to uh, your time in 2006 when you and I think it was maybe five or six other Christians took a walk across America. Yes beginning in Phoenix on Easter Sunday, 2006, and ending 141 days later in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and that experience became the subject of your book, Asphalt Jesus, Finding a New Christian Faith Along the Highways of America. Yes. And, I, and I grabbed this snippet from Publishers Weekly uh, mm-hmm. of a review, and they said that um, you had an idea that wouldn't go away, mm-hmm. develop principles of a more generous and affirmative faith to counter the dominance of conservative Christianity in the media and to witness for this faith by walking with other Christians 2,500 miles from Phoenix to D.C. So I'm just wondering about what did you encounter as you undertook that experience and and what it is that perhaps you can draw from then um, that maybe has some parallel or gives you further pause for thought now?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, what we found surprised the heck out of us, actually. You know, we were, you know, these progressive Christians walking to show that you, there's more than one way to be Christian. And, and we had these Phoenix affirmations that we were you know, carrying with us, these 12 principles. We kind of had this Bay of Pigs mentality at the time. We, like, wave the flags for a more generous-spirited, uh, you know, inclusive view, vision of Christianity. And the, the oppressed masses will rise up and want to, you know, have a national conversation on faith and, and life, public life, and, and, and so we were kind of out there to rally our team in a sense. Um, we weren't going to speak against uh, those who we were in disagreement. We were just going to speak for what we were happy about in, in our faith, but we always knew there were the people who were, again, there was the other side of things, but what we found almost from the start was we kept meeting up with people from the, quote, other side in much deeper ways than any of us had had experience of. I mean, when you slow down life from 65 miles an hour to three miles an hour, you have a long time, and you have a lot of opportunities for conversation with people who are quite different from you. And what we found was really shocking to us um, that, yes, there are the people who are, fit the stereotypes, um, but there, there's actually a lot fewer of them than one would imagine that most people actually have a very rich mixture of, of leanings. And so, and it may seem even, you know, contradictory and somebody might be a, a real you know, warrior for, you know, uh, uh, fighting for uh, poverty, you know, rights and, and, and really raising that, but they may be also fiercely, you know, anti, anti-abortion, you know, uh, you know, things like this, or they may have you know mixtures, of things that, that are kind of liberal and and conservative within them, um, but we also found that there were people who grew up natively in a more conservative tradition who were had, had a real problem with their faith. And, and like you think about the rural, you know, we walked across the panhandle of Texas, you know, and just rural, conservative areas where, where people like me would, would have normally like written it off like as universally conservative and against everything that we would stand for. We kept finding these people, they'd come up to us, they'd say, they like be whispering in our ears, you know, thank you, you're walking for me, but I'm sure I'm the only person in my church who would say this. But we knew they weren't because like three others had said the exact same thing to us, same church. And there were all these people who basically had grown up in this tradition, had developed serious questions about it and frustrations and wanted to leave, but had no exit strategy, no ability to, especially in the rural areas. If you raise your hand and say, I, you know, I don't th- agree with this, you could lose not only your faith community, but your social network and even your economic network. And so there's a lot of pressure to just take the party line. So that was interesting though, that there's massive amounts of people in conservative churches who aren't nearly as conservative as you think. The other thing we found was in the liberalism side, there were a lot of people who were like really frustrated liberals. They weren't looking for a more conservative um, view of faith but they were frustrated that a lot of times in my own tribe of liberalism, you know, we, it's almost like we conclude that whatever the fundamentalists do badly, we won't do it all. If they do Jesus badly, well, we'll just kind of de- you know, tone down Jesus. If they would prayer badly, well, we will not do much prayer. If the Bible badly, we don't do much Bible. And basically let the fundamentalists you know, <laughs> run run our faith because <laughs> it's like whatever we, we think they're doing badly, we just won't do it all. And they're saying, I don't want a conservative Jesus, but I want more Jesus. I, I don't want conservative prayer, but I want, I want some spiritual practices I like can rabbi, you know that kind of thing, and so we found that like so that it almost felt like there are these two groups of like oppressed slaves, <laughs> and they were like wanting to get out into the wilderness, wander, and they maybe they were wandering in the wilderness, maybe they left their churches even and and were just wandering out there and but you know, there were two groups and, they, and neither side knew of each other's presence if they ran into each other, they would have not have known that that they actually hold very if yet because if you ask them, what are your your hopes and dreams or what are your values? They were almost exactly the same, but each side grew up to be suspicious of each other. Like, Oh, they oh, that's the liberals or those are the conservatives. Like, Oh, you don't deal with them. And so we, we always thought that if they, those two groups ever met each other in the wilderness, there would just be the biggest party you could ever imagine. And every year since the walk, I asked, well, has this happened yet? And it's like the media was not reporting on us at all. <laughs> these masses underneath the radar, and it's because they're not the majority in any church, but they are like twenty five percent of every church, you know kind of thing you know? <laughs> and 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 so if they, have they have they noticed each other, and every year I had to ask say no, 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 no no, no, they haven't. But then in two thousand eleven, there was this festival that happened in North Carolina. All the organizers did they, they kind of wove a wave of flag up saying we 're into spirituality, justice, and the arts you 're into that as and we were are Christian. you know anybody into that come and the, and those escaped slaves from both camps they 're the ones that showed up, and they discovered each other for like for the first time, and it was like the biggest party ever. <laughs> it was great it 's called the Wild Goose Festival, and it 's continuing to this day um, and it draws those exact you know, kind of exiles from from the both, both streams.
0: We seem to have retreated into political partisanship in, and dare I say theological partisanship in some weird ways. Yeah. Are you finding hope or drawing some lessons about what, what the next phase of reconciliation and this sort of celebratory harmony that you've just described might Mm -hmm. look like?
1: In my reading of American history, it's a little different than a lot of people. Um, I actually, when I trace events, it, uh, Reli- developments in religion tend to precede political developments by uh, you know, five, ten years, sometimes even 20 years. And now you, we think about like major social developments, like religious people blocking them like slavery and all these things, but it's actually not until the religious people wake up and they go, oh my God, this is not just a, you know, some sort of social issue that's out there that I don't need to have. This is like core to my faith. <laughs> that's when the, there's this huge sea change and, and it starts it within the faith communities and then it becomes political and that time frame has kind of shortened now that we have the internet and so forth, but every single major shift we've had in society has been preceded by developments in, in religion, and so when I saw, I coined this term convergence Christianity for when those two escaped slaves, you know, kind of those exiles found each other, and, and that stuck, um, and actually there's a lot of writing now on convergence, and, and, and my hope was that, okay, oh my god, the people who have been on opposite sides have finally found each other in the religious ground. So I was, I'm just waiting for this to happen politically. Well, obviously that didn't happen. (laughs) So it's like, what's going on? But I think, I think that's very much has to do with the development of social media, which, um, which completely puts us in echo chambers and, uh, which did not exist in all of American history before. So it actually just diverted this whole normal, you know, flow of things, um, and, but isn't it interesting? Even today, like as a more liberally oriented uh, person, it's hard for me to fathom why somebody. And uh, I'll don't don't send me emails. I'm leaving already. If you're hearing this, but it, it, it's it's still very hard for me to know why somebody would vote for Donald Trump, for instance. But I also acknowledge that's a problem. Like that, I can't fathom that. And they can't fathom why I would vote for Biden or something like this. It's like we can't fathom why each other is doing what we're doing. And that normally tells me that none of us have the eye, our eyes on what's actually going on. And so and I think what's actually going on, even I forget at times that people are a lot more nuanced when you actually meet them face to face and they have a lot more mixed beliefs and feelings about things. And what we've done is we fall into that trap over and over again, like, oh, they're all like this and they're all like this. And that's just not the case. Anybody should just take a walk across the country and (laughs) slow life down. You'll find this in spades.
0: It's in encountering each other Mm -hmm. that I think we find our way to something that is a deeper truth about humanity at large, but also about ourselves. Yes. I set it up this way because we can't avoid the other catastrophe that has stricken us right now, which is the global pandemic. Mm -hmm. At a time when it feels as if we really physically need to be able to come together if we're ever going to bridge these gaps, that that are, you know, these chasms between us, we're precluded by this kind of natural trauma, uh, this virus from from doing that. Firstly, you have shared publicly that you yourself have uh, some months ago uh, caught the uh, coronavirus and clearly have, uh, you know, come through that experience. But I'm wondering then if you have a viewpoint from a personal perspective about someone who has been inflicted by that and what, what COVID means more broadly for how people can can come together in a faithful way.
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah, I was like person two or one or you – know, no, I, was, I think there's a second person in Omaha that had COVID. I had come from a trip in Spain. I was researching, actually, the golden era of relationships between Jews, Christians, and Muslims that took place between about 800 and – 1200 um, CE. And um, and Spain wasn't on the hot list for COVID when we were over there. But then um, two days later, I developed um, this mild cough. And then that night, it was announced that Spain was put on the hot list for COVID. I'm like, oh, that's weird. And the next morning, I woke up that mild cough, which I typically get during allergy season, didn't go away. I thought, well, this is Probably allergies, but given that Spain's on the hot list, maybe I better get checked out. And sure enough, they said, "Yeah, you should get checked out." And I had COVID. <laughs> and so, uh, but I but the, a mild cough that lasted for all of four days was my entire symptom list. I never had any other symptom but that, and that really put and set like the fear of God in me. It's like, oh my gosh, there could be people like me out there in fact there must be people like me out there who basically are carrying this thing and if i weren't you know a minister of a large church thinking i need to have like exercise of an overabundance of caution here um i never would have gotten checked out you know and what if somebody catches it from me and they then they haven't even been to spain and they're getting have you know so we need i literally in march i was i was on cnn (laughs) Saying, we need to have a shelter-in-place policy. We need to, for 40 days, we just need to buckle down. It's going to be hard. And yes, it's going to be really hard economically. But if we don't do this, we'll probably have an economic scene that will last months or years. Um, so we need to do this now and get it over with. And of course, everybody listened to me. And, that, and now that's why we we don't you know, have any problems.
0: <laughs> if only, if yeah, only. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to focus this this discussion on um, protests about right to worship, I'm more interested in some ways about how people are managing to maintain their own faith Mm -hmm. and to adhere to their own faith-based principles, Christian or or other, at a time when the rituals of reinforcing those by coming together Mm -hmm. have have been diminished. Uh, That to me feels more worrying for people.
1: Yeah, no, I want, and it kind of depends on what kind of theological stripe you're in. I mean, uh, like Countryside, there's, there was just never a question. We would shut down, and we would uh, do online worship, and we bought airtime on KMTV, so we're on KMTV at 1030 every Sunday morning, so more people could, you know, our congregation outside of it could reach us. Um, and, and that's where we're at. We're not going to be opening up anytime soon. Um, now, obviously, there are churches that have opened in the state. They opened up almost immediately. But they also tend to have a different theological perspective than we do. What's driving the churches that opened, um, you know, uh, who have been very adamant about staying open, almost all of them have an underlying belief that if you're not Christian, you're going to go to hell. Okay, so if you have that, that underlying belief, which Countryside does not share, then why wouldn't you be open? I mean, as an act of compassion, why not put yourself in danger even? Because of those eternal consequences that can happen to people, so I actually, even though I was very much against the churches that were doing that, um, they're not actually being hypocritical in that. There, there's a faith component there. They're literally, in certain ways, and like if you actually held that belief, you could see them being rather heroic in that sense. I mean, they're actually putting their lives where their mouths are. Like we care about these people. We want to save these people. So we will, we will openly even risk ourselves in order to do this. I just don't. And my community does not share that belief that you go to hell if you're not a Christian. And so, but what I do have to pay attention to, and and this is an issue, is like, you may not be going to hell if you're not a Christian, but we do need, like, you're, you know, like you've recognized, we need community. And, and we do have, you know, and, and our spiritual life definitely is best worked out, not just simply alone on a mountaintop someplace, but in community with others. And so that's problematic. And of course, we have people who handle crises like this, you know, without hardly skipping a beat and that other people have a harder time um, with that, that just don't have the tools to, to manage that. And so in, increasingly it's on my mind too about just how to be pastoral in a situation like this where, no, we're not going to open up anytime soon, but there's a lot of people for whom that would be really, really helpful for them in their, in their path because life is, is pretty hard for them right now.
0: I feel like your um, your life, your stories, change seems to be a very central element mm-hmm. to, to all of this. I want to at least give a moment to think about the future and the congregation that you're going mm-hmm. to. So the First Congregational United Church of Christ in Portland is a smaller congregation. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about how do you feel you personally will respond to a smaller church a smaller congregation.
1: Well, so I started out in a church that was just a couple hundred members, and I love that. In fact, I love that so much in Scottsdale. Um, I swore I would never serve a church over 500 members, and then here's countryside, you know, and, and but I discovered I can love a large church. I've loved my experience in serving a large church and having staff, actually, to, you know, I have a wonderful staff and 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 so forth. So that really convinced me that I was wrong about a large church you can actually have a really good experience in a large church and a large church i thought large churches could not be nimble like you couldn't change like they they were so stuck on whatever made them large to begin with that they would never ever want to get off that that pedestal and countryside has been incredibly nimble and they're incredibly inspiring to me it's like okay you were wrong 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 But, but now going to a small church, though, it's, yeah, it feels familiar to me Then I grew up in a smaller church and I served a smaller church for 13 years before coming to Countryside. So there are advantages to being able to, to look out at the congregation and know every name of every person and something of their story. Uh, and that's nice. Um, that's like the only thing that has ever really graded on me uh, being a minister of a larger church is that every Sunday there are people who I see and have known, you know, have come for a long time who I, if you ask me what their name is, I couldn't come up with it. You, every person can th- you know, know about 200 names. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm no different. And, and, and so that has always graded on the or if I don't know their name, maybe I don't know as much of their story as I, as I want to. So that's, that's actually, that would be a, a nice thing. Um, but it's definitely the biggest challenge and biggest risk I've ever taken. Um, it's a church that, you know, like many mainline uh, uh, inner city congregations has been in membership decline for, you know, easily a decade, more than a decade and uh, they used to be the size of countryside church actually their sanctuary sits, sits uh, seats about 900 people but you know now you'll find you know, you know pre covid it would they they would have uh, about 125 in worship you know and uh, and so um you know they need to um you know kind of find themselves and, and 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 their relationships and and so forth and um but it's also in an area that is deeply unchurched i mean the pacific northwest uh, people um, generally they don't go to church, and 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 they're not. They they're, they tend to fall more in that nuns category. They're they're very. A lot of them are very deeply spiritual, but they're not religious, and they wouldn't identify with any particular faith. And so, uh, faith is you know in a sense a hard sell. Um, but the advantage of, in the Pacific Northwest is people are so deeply on church that people haven't. There's a lot fewer people who've been hurt from church in the past because they haven't, they've never gone. So it's more like in the Pacific Northwest, they're so deeply interested, they're more like, oh, you're Christian, really? Well, tell me about, you know, what, what's that about? <laughs> it's not like, you're Christian, I hate you. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's nice, but it also means that you can't just simply trot out biblical language and expect anybody to know anything about what you're doing. I mean, the congregation itself that exists does, but what about the people who are not coming? And so the challenge for me more than in Omaha, where actually there is a at least in traditionally has been a lot more higher biblical literacy than any place I've served. There's no biblical literacy, so you just can't you you have to they'll, they'll make real for people what you're trying to say without using the same language. You have to really be experiential. That's part of the challenge, you know, moving forward. But the church is just two blocks away from everything you see on TV, the, you know, the rioting and so forth, and and in fact, just last week the uh, the there was a, a the rioting went into. Right around our front of the church, and and people were knocking down statues and set a fire on the porch of the church. <laughs> so it's like wow. Um, although I, now I say that, but also that was a special big. It was actually a, an Indigenous people's um, uh, uh, celebration kind of thing that went a bit, a little bit further. But a lot of that that more extreme rioting is toned down quite a lot in in Portland. So it's it's not the zombie apocalypse that some people are talking you think think it's going to, you know, it is or whatever. Portland still is a very vibrant, uh, hospitable city and, uh, you know, and so forth. It's a wonderful city, in fact. <laughs> ¶¶
0: words of encouragement do you have? What words of ministry would you offer that can help us see a way to transcend what feels like a certain callous, cold, self-centeredness as opposed to a more graceful, compassionate generosity? Mm -hmm. Uh, Just curious what you would offer
1: us uh, in that regard. Well two things come to mind right away. one is just kind of the thirty thousand foot level about our, our our place in history right now. we have especially western civilization and i 'm not saying this doesn 't happen in the east i'm just this is my area of my focus tends to go through these tectonic consciousness shifts about every five hundred years and um, and, and what 's happening now, I think is not because there 's like then this bad has entered our world and is now growing out of our control. It's because so many good things came into the world in this last century that it toppled the tables on everybody, all the power structures, and and, and are really inviting us to re-envision what life is is about and wh- where our priorities are. And But the power structures that are set up to benefit from all these, the old ways of thinking, are fighting for their lives right now. And so it's important, I think, uh, as, as people of faith or non-faith, just, just students of history even to not be so discouraged like we, it's actually because of the giftedness because it always happens like take the renaissance oh great renaissance well people were freaking out during the renaissance they were not skipping around saying oh isn't this great like everything was being turned on its head in the renaissance in, in every area of life and then renaissance was followed by reformation that's where the fight at you know, things get t- toppled on the head that people say okay now what's real and, and and who gets to decide what's real and what's ju- what is even justice and what is you know what are values and and so right now we're in the big fight after our own version of the Renaissance which was the 20th century, I mean the 20th century makes the Renaissance look like child's play in terms of new ideas and new ways of being and and science and technology that came to the world. We're in the fight right now, so it's important to know that the fight is over because of the good stuff. And in if we don't blow it, the good wins. <laughs> But but normally, though, those periods are followed, unfortunately, by seasons of violence. And they appear to be pretty much inescapable. They're a sociological phenomenon to large-scale change in society. So I'm hoping it doesn't become violent because the last thing we want to do is become like Northern Ireland, you know, in that time. I mean, 30 years of violence, you know, of killing each other. And then 30 years later, they're still kind of on, on edge, you know, with Brexit and all this. They're on edge. And and so we don't want to go that direction. So it's it's a time of tremendous danger, but also it's the danger is because of the opportunities. And the other thing I'll say and this is kind of more recent thinking since the COVID thing, you know, like if we were in biblical times and we had, a, had a, this plague come across us, like there's no question what people are saying. This is God's hand. You know, this is God's cause, the, you know, the, the, this plague. But now I don't not hold that, that, that view uh, in any kind of precise way, uh, but I think the reason why people attribute that to God is because when these plagues came along, it, they caused the stuff that we're feeling right now and it caused people to reevaluate their values and get closer to one another and do less stuff. And all. like all these good things actually came from this horrible tragedy thing that people said, oh, that was kind of a sacred thing that just happened to us. We thought it was horrible and it really was horrible and terrifying and, and it tore all kinds of stuff up. But in the what came from this was a new way of seeing our lives. So that's, I think, why they then retroactively thought, oh, well, God must have brought this in, you know. And so we don't have to hold like God caused the the COVID or whatever, but maybe we could see that what's going on, it's not all horrible and terrifying. There's actually sacred stuff going on as we slow down. And I think even a lot of the protests and rioting is because a lot of us, you know, have stopped to think about like what the heck is here? And the, and the, the coronavirus has almost been like a, a low tide where there's rocks underneath the waters. But the the tide goes down. You see, and you should have known about those rocks anyway because they've been on maps. You know <laughs> stuff like that. But if you didn't, if you had no idea, now everybody sees them. You know, we need to care about you. Know, like the the people who are out there as first responders and people who work in grocery stores, like who are risking you know their health just to so that we can eat. We need to be paying them a fair wage. (laughs) We should not be taking them for granted. Healthcare. It's like, it's the last thing we should be depriving people of is, is health care. And our own health is actually very much dependent upon the health of others. You know, things like that. It's like, oh, yeah, we should have thought of this long ago. You know, but if you haven't thought about this, well, maybe it's now a little more apparent we need to do something about this. The race issue the same way. I mean, look at that, how the COVID has, crisis has just, just affected like the Afri- people of color in particularly destructive ways. Like, we can't let this go on. And we can't certainly can't be participating in this this system that allows these things to go on. So yeah, let's do something about it now. We see the rocks. You know. And then we'll look back and we'll see the world that we create because we saw the rocks. That you know, that was really hard. But something happened here that was really sacred.
0: My guest today has been the Reverend Dr. Eric Elnes, currently Senior Minister for Countryside Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska, but surely to be the Minister at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Portland, Oregon. Eric, I'm just so grateful for you spending some time with us and just sharing a little bit about uh, your thoughts.
1: Thank you so much. Well, it's been a privilege and honor. I always respected your work and loved the way you bring the community into conversation, so it's, thank you for inviting me into it.
0: That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.